Ignition sequence start. Six, five, four, three, two, one, zero. All engine running. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. Tower cleared. Welcome to Space 3D. Co-hosts Eleanor O'Rangers and Tom Hill continue their interview of fellow co-host Emily Carney about Gerard K. O'Neill, theoretical physicist and space futurist who she has written about in her National Space Society blogs. First, we'll discuss O'Neill's entrepreneurial ventures into space solar power and pioneering work in GPS that led to the launch of Geostar satellites. Then, we'll conclude the episode with a transition to the origins of the Space Studies Institute and L5 Society. There are a couple other things that I did kind of want to go into. One is sort of the whole idea around his founding of the Space Studies Institute. But I do want to maybe first touch on some of his, the, the stuff he did as an entrepreneur, which I guess maybe gets into some of that latter part of his career. Yeah. Um, because I think a lot, I didn't realize these things that he was involved in did lead eventually to other things. So I don't know if you want to talk a little bit about that. And, you know, it's the satellite stuff and, you know, even space solar power. I'm kind of interested in those various things that he dabbled in. Yeah, um, he did work with uh, Dr. Peter Glazer um, in the realm of uh, space, uh, space-based solar power. Uh, which would uh, tie in with the idea of space uh, settlements. Uh, basically, it's a clean, it would be like a clean form of energy in space. It would involve, you know, nuclear power or any other power source. So he did work with Peter Glazer and uh, Dr. Peter Glazer in that realm. Um, fun fact, I actually own a copy of The High Frontier inscribed to Glazer from O'Neill. So, oh, neat. Yeah, when I, when I die, that's coming with me. Um, that's coming with me in the casket. Collector's <laughs> item. Yeah, that's that's like one of the my favorite things in the planet. But um, so he did work with Dr. Peter Glazer in that capacity. My one of my favorite things um to talk about as far as O'Neill is concerned isn't even and uh, when I say this, people are like, "What?" Um, isn't really even uh, space settlements. Uh, one of my favorite things is talking about his activities during the 1980s, which happened during his more entrepreneurial years. So the 1980s happened. Okay. And um, they did. Yeah. So <laughs> let's flash forward to 1980. Okay. Um, O'Neill has written the high frontier. Um, it was a very successful book, gained dozens of accolades from it because of his ideas. One of the first space advocacy groups uh, formed in 1975. Um, it's called the L5 society, which was later integrated into the national space society. So by 1980, you know, he's got this book out that's, you know, been very successful. He's been in a lot of different types of media. He's been interviewed on the Johnny Carson show. He's been on PBS's Nova. There was a show he did in uh, the 70s called Roundtable. Uh, the interview is still available on YouTube, but it was an interview with him and Isaac Asimov. It was the second interview they did. And uh if anybody's interested in this subject, you really have to watch it. It's actually pretty cool. He was interviewed in a lot of different places. 
um, as diverse as People Magazine and Penthouse Magazine. And um, yes, he was in Penthouse. Omni Magazine, too. Yeah, he was in Omni Magazine. I think he wrote a few uh, articles in Omni as well. Let's face Um, it. When you're on the science fringe, there aren't many magazines that will publish your articles. Yeah. And um, I actually read a thing about when he was in Penthouse. He told his colleagues at Princeton, he's like, look, guys, um, I did an article. It's in Penthouse. So don't laugh, you know. And they actually put it. They thought it was hilarious. So he didn't really face a lot of judgment for doing that, which is kind of incredible. I think it's the most hilarious thing he's ever done. I do have the, oh my God, I can't believe I'm admitting this. I do have the issue and it's actually a really fantastic interview he did. It's a serious interview. It's not fluffy or, you know, it's, it's a very serious interview he did. So, um, so you own a copy of the magazine for the articles. Yeah, correct. Yes. Okay, just checking. Just checking. Yeah, he is the only person wearing clothing in the whole magazine. <laughs> um, so yeah, but I do have the magazine. Uh, if anybody is actually interested in it, I'm, you know, trigger alert. There's a lot of naked people in it, but it's the August 1976 episode or issue, I should say. I'm shocked. So, yes, shocked. I know. Terribly shocking. So anyway, he became very popular. He developed a a stardom, I would say, almost at the same level as Carl Sagan had around that time. Uh, they were probably two of the most uh, popular scientists and science communicators in that era. He writes a book called 2081, which I previously mentioned, and it does okay. It received a lot of criticism for being too far-fetched, too futuristic. And by the early 80s, obviously, Reagan was now in office. A lot of O'Neill's vision for space settlements began to lose its popularity around that time, mainly because there's many reasons, but I think part of it was because it was viewed as kind of being, you know, um, too futuristic, too, you know, kind of too crazy. And it sort of carried like that stink with it of the 70s, you know, and the 1980s you had think of the 70s yeah the 1980s you know reagan's in office you know they're talking about you know there's that city on a hill speech you know and everything is really optimistic by the early part of the decade part of o'neill's message in the 70s and this is one criticism that has been made of him was okay we're running out of resources on earth we're scuttling our forests there's nuclear armaments on this planet you know we need to think of a better way to leave the planet, you know, in case we have to. And um, so I think O'Neill's ideas sort of gained criticism because they were seen as sort of a response to something negative. So, and that's a popular criticism of his ideas. I want to make sure I get some of the, the, you know, the yin and yang of his ideas out there because not everybody viewed his ideas positively. Um, well, and, and yet, today, <clears throat> he, he would be probably... A folk hero, you know, because of the renewed emphasis on climate change. Um, yes. So it's it's interesting how, again, you know, he was ahead of his time. And uh, so I, I find it fascinating. Yeah, I think he was often a victim of like ahead of his time, you know, like way too ahead of his time. I think he was very, uh, I talked to Dr. Phil Chapman uh, about O'Neill and he was like, you know, I found, and this is what uh, Dr. Chapman said. He was like, you know, I found Jerry, he called him Jerry, uh, very imaginative and brilliant. And uh, he was very charismatic, but often he was too futuristic 
like uh, he went and spoke to Congress about space settlements in the late, I think in 1978. And one of the Congress people basically was like, okay, now that you've talked about this, I, you know, I, I don't ever want to do this because it was so, it was so out there to this person. I and, don't uh, understand what you're talking about. <laughs> exactly. I think O'Neill, you know, he was very, um, he was a scientist. And I think he was, he effectively talked him out, you know, of, of uh, making sense to this particular person. Back to the 1980s, though. So I think by the early 80s... Wonder Woman! Yeah, Wonder Woman. Uh, I think by the early 1980s, O'Neill sort of sensed that his ideas, you know, as far as space settlement were concerned, were kind of going, I wouldn't say out of vogue, but were kind of losing their luster. So he started paying attention to... um, more entrepreneurial efforts and one of them is really quite fascinating it's um it's called the radio determination uh satellite service or rdss and that is a uh, idea he patented in 1980 and um that idea is a precursor to gps and o'neill was a private pilot flying was his cup of tea unlike uh, brian o'leary and um anyway he um wanted a system basically like okay what if a pilot gets in trouble they get lost and they need to you know triangulate their way figure out their location so they can get home or they can get help or something like that so he came up with the idea of um rdss which would later be called geostar and uh geostar was uh his his brainchild uh i believe the company started in 1983 and he wrote a few articles about it but really it was GPS before GPS was, it was a thing really. Um, You know, the idea was if you were in any kind of vehicle and you were in trouble, they could find your location. You know, you could get motor help or you could get help for your airplane or something like that. And um, really ahead of its time, because as we know, nowadays we have this technology pretty readily available on our smartphones, you know, where we can, if we have to get help, you know, it, certain car insurances you can they can find your location and you know put a tire on your car do something so um really ahead of its time idea and i believe o'neill worked with a gentleman with at the uh, with the aopa um Mm -hmm. because he, he was part of that because he was a private pilot and to put this idea together so and uh i did write i'm trying to consult my notes here so while while you're doing that emily i i dug this dug into this during my my pre uh research here in in our talk and so i worked with uh gps in the early 90s mm-hmm. and it turns out so gps was classified as it was first being developed yeah <clears throat> and its first flight was in 1978 yeah so in the meantime since it's classified you know people in the real world don't know what's going on so he's starting this whole patent process. Meanwhile, the government's working on this in the background. And it wasn't until the shootdown of the uh, airline, the airline. Pan Am. Is that Pan Am? No. Uh, no, it was KAL. KAL oh, 007. Oh, yeah, the, the one over by the Russians when they shot yes. it down. The yes. Korean Airlines. Yeah. That, that that led to the declassification of GPS. So that, you know, the whole mm-hmm. thing of. You have this concept, this concept of knowing where you are, no matter where you are, 
and different people have it at the same time, the U.S. government's working on it with all their resources and it's classified and GKO is filing his patent saying, hey, we can do this. It's just fascinating to me, you know, how it I, I wish I had a little more time to look into it before, you know, we did this uh, this uh, talk. But it, the timing of that whole thing is just really crazy. You know what else is an interesting aside is you've got he's at Princeton University and about 45 minutes um, away from that in Warminster at the Naval Air Development Center, they were doing operational uh, testing of GPS, actually, at the time. Um, so it's kind of ironic that, you know, not that far away, they're, the military is doing this classified work in the Navy and the Air Force together. And then you've got, you know, the academic guy over in Princeton doing the same thing. So it's, yeah, it's interesting how this all comes together. Yeah. So the early 80s are going on and, you know, initially it looked really, you know, Geostar, his venture looked, you know, was he was very positive about it. So um, he did do an interview in uh, 1984 Compute Magazine about um, Geostar, you know, and he basically said, you know, it's been very positive so far. A lot of people were, you know, saying, you know, how did you know, to, how did you know to design a system that is exactly what we've been looking for? That's a direct quote from him. Uh, I believe Geostar had two or three launches, so it did have some payloads up, but um, pretty quickly by the mid-80s, it was running into issues. Part of it, and it really, it started sadly around the time that um, O'Neill got sick. Uh, in 1985, he developed, uh, he, uh, he hadn't been feeling well for a while, so uh, he went and got, you know, tests and stuff, and he uh, found out he had a chronic lymphocytic leukemia, CLL. I don't know much about this type of blood cancer. I know it's really rare. Um, I have heard, I don't know how accurate this is. I'm not a, I'm not a doctor. I have heard speculation from a few people that um, they think he was exposed to something during his career that may have caused it. He got ill quite young. He was in his late fifties. That sounds very young to me suddenly. Yeah, he was. He was yeah, really. A mere child. <clears throat> yeah. I mean, yeah, to me, that sounds I mean, it is quite young. He, I think he was 58 when he was diagnosed. So that's really not, you know, that it, it's pretty young to get diagnosed with blood cancer, I think. 50s so, or the um, 30s. What are you talking about? Yeah. Well, yeah, it's kind <laughs> of a sad story because he passed quite young. And I feel like we all got robbed, really. But uh, he develops leukemia. And around that time, uh, Geostar started running into a lot of issues. Uh, and this is from uh, the Smithsonian website uh, directly. Uh, I didn't write this. This is from their website. But uh, following his initial remission, um, a disagreement over proxies arose between O'Neill and uh, Geostar, and there was a lawsuit. While it did launch a few payloads, uh, the company really started to fall apart as O'Neill's health declined. And by um, mm. 1991, uh, Geostar's assets were uh, purchased by Iridium, which was then a Motorola um, affiliate and Comsat Corp. But still, you have to. Look, I try to look at it this way: he still was a pioneer of early GPS or the idea of that kind of service. I mean, who hasn't? I, I can tell you. I mean, I, I've gone in my car before. I've had my car break down, and I've had to use it. You know, I've had to use my car's you know pinging service to get you know a tow truck out to me before. So yeah. really. 
And that's something that O'Neill was talking about that, okay, you know, what if you break down and you need, you know, to, to kind of ping to get, you know, help or something, you know, direct to, you know, call somebody to get help or something. And you can just have them come directly to you because they know where you're at. And I think that's part of his legacy. Definitely. Just because the company, you know, may have failed. I still believe that's part of his legacy. So I try to look at it that way that, you know, okay, this was somebody definitely thinking, you know, 30, 40 years into the future or so. And um, at the time of his death, he was actually um, proposing sort of a maglev type project, like a high speed rail uh, type project. He was working on something like that, which is really cool. I don't know much about that, but I know he was around the time he passed. That was something he was interested in. They're talking about maglev now for the Northeast Corridor, and they've been talking about maglev in California for years. Yeah, yeah. They've been talking about the tax incentives for building a maglev in California for decades. My cynicism came out. <laughs> but no, it's yeah. funny. The, the system that you're describing now, I actually, I've done some research for this fairly recently. So we take you take the GPS signal that comes down and tells you where you are. But the current model is that you send that information out via a cellular network. It's a an, an interesting hybrid. You know, he had he had great ideas, great insight of what could happen. But it's very interesting how the the model of how it worked in the end involves signals from space, then translating into a signal terrestrially to actually calling help because of the network that was created via the cellular network. Yeah, his his theory, um, I have a diagram of what RDSS looked like circa 1980. And it's his it's from his patent. And it's and it's the artwork from the patent. And um, it, I think it's a lot different from what GPS is nowadays. But um, there are a few there are some parallels. I think it's on Wikipedia. Yeah, it's under it's the one with the three satellite points, the, and the three airplane. satellites and a ground yep. station and the aircraft labeled A. <laughs> yep. That's yep. from his patent. So it's yeah, publicly and, available. And Talk while it's Google. funny, you know, it, once again, you can't fault people for not having perfect vision of the future. That's that's one thing that I, I believe we we consistently do. It's like, well, they didn't see this exactly right. It's like, I'm sorry if they pointed in the right direction. That's a win. Yeah, you know, that, that's my view. I think his legacy definitely um you know, can be viewed through that, the lens of, okay, he predicted this type of technology. It may not look exactly the same as he predicted, but he predicted that we would need something like that. Does that make sense? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And the problem is the downside, (laughs) the downside version of that is the patent troll. Somebody who jotted something down one day and sent it to the U.S. patent office. And anytime anybody comes up, you know, actually tries to implement anything somewhat similar. They're like, oh, that was my idea. Exactly. I do think his part of his legacy, I'm trying to put this in words because I don't want to sound critical of O'Neill. I think a lot of people look at him through this lens of, well, his ideas didn't exactly make it. We're not living in space settlements. And, you know, um, Geostar didn't happen, you know, as he predicted it and blah, blah, blah. I think that's reductive. I think that I do believe, I mean, this is where people think I'm going to be cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs. Um, I do believe we're going to see settlements in space someday. And I do believe O'Neill has had a huge bearing on that. 
Does it mean it's going to occur exactly as he said it? Maybe not. But I do believe some of the ideas um, will definitely have an impact on the future. And we've already talked about, you know, Geostar. I think some of his, um, is it happening exactly as he predicted? No, but I think he's definitely a pioneer in that area. So well, um, I think you could call him a catalyst. Exactly. He's, I think That's he's, part a, of it. That's part he's of it. a catalyst. and I think he's a pioneer in those areas, you know, mm-hmm. and that definitely deserves recognition. It's kind of like, you know, Von Braun envisioned space stations. When we eventually got our first space station in 1973, it didn't look like Von Braun's design, but he's still a pioneer in that area. So that's how I, I mean, that's how I look at it. Yeah. One of the early internet uh, arguments I got into was when a, um, an, a special effects designer from Star Trek Voyager took a picture of the space shuttle approaching the international space station and overlaid it with the, the space station in 2001. And he said, you know, don't get lost on, you know, the way the space station is shaped and all that sort of thing. We are almost where we were in 2001. I said, 2001 was a commercial flight to a, a developing space station. There's a lot more than just the shape of the station that's lost there. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Wow. Well, yeah. speaking of like him being a catalyst, maybe we can talk a little bit about um, the Space Studies Institute and how that got started. Okay. And that was co-founded with his wife, right? Yes. Um, he co-founded that um, with his wife, in uh, 1977, his wife is named uh, Tasha, and she is still alive. Um, I actually have talked to her for uh, an interview or an article that I'm trying to write right now. And Tasha wasn't just his wife. They were they had a pretty progressive uh, partnership. I- I've seen pictures. Of, they did have a child together in 1980. From I've seen a few you know family pictures of them. And uh, Jerry seemed Jerry. I'm talking about him like I'm he's my friend or something. I never met him, but. Uh, he he seemed very progressive even as a father like for for a man of his era he was born in 1927 so you know that was kind of the time of mad men you know and women stay at home with the kids and you know the guys you know don't do anything they go to work and stuff but he uh seemed incredibly hands-on as a parent but they were i think he viewed her as an equal partner in you know the SSI or the Space Studies Institute and that was started in 1977 by them. And the idea behind that was, and the SSI is still around to this day. Basically, the idea was by that point, um, O'Neill had been involved in uh, three NASA studies uh, at NASA Ames uh, in concert with Stanford University in 1975, 76, and 77. Some of the findings from those, uh, the, they were called summer studies because they were done in the summer. Can you believe that? But, um, <laughs> but, um, Whoa, slow down. Right. I know. Isn't that something? But, um, some of those, uh, some of the findings from those studies can be found, uh, today online. Uh, the 1976 sessions are in a book called the Yellow Mass Driver book, which, uh, I found on eBay today for a lot of money. So I can't afford it, which really sucks. If anybody can find that book for below $70, please let me know. Basically, what happened was they, they had these um, summer studies for three years at NASA in concert with Stanford University uh, to sort of study the viability of uh, certain space settlements and to come up with more designs and more ideas for these type of things. 
Uh, Brian O'Leary was a big part of these. And a lot of the ideas from that time relied on space shuttle technology because the space shuttle was being designed at that time. Uh, I think one of the ideas for uh, space habitation involved using external tanks, for example, uh, stuff like that. It seems very wild right now, but that's kind of the direction spaceflight seemed to be going in during the 1970s. So it bears mentioning that, you know, that's the context we need to give it because that was the time. Basically what happened was O'Neill sort of saw the writing on the wall uh, around this time that, you know, while NASA was nice, it was subject to a lot of changing political whims. A good example would be, you know, that the Nixon administration sort of scuttled some funding and obviously some space missions were canceled. Uh, as we can see, some of the Apollo missions were canceled. The shuttle uh, ended up being a big design compromise around that time. Uh, what was you know envisioned for the shuttle became something different. I think O'Neill really saw the writing on the wall that you know the the space program really was subject to the whims of politicians. Whoa! I think, once again, you're I know, blowing right? my mind. I think the more he started working in the confines of NASA, he started to realize this. Um, so anyway, his idea was, you know, I want my own sort of nonprofit association um, with like-minded people where um, we can discuss space settlement ideas and we're not completely at the whim of NASA or their funding because NASA could change their mind about, you know, you know, I'm just throwing at a hypothetical situation. Let's, you know, last year, you know, 2020, NASA was, you know, Oh, we're nuts about Artemis. We're going back to the moon, right? You know, I don't want to jinx anything, but who who knows? I mean, this year they could say, okay, we're not doing that. You know? Yep. Um, it's happened before <laughs> in NASA no. history, and it'll you're, happen again. You're just talking crazy, woman. I know, right? <laughs> um, some people will hear me say this, and they're going to flip out and get mad, but it's true. We've seen it happen before, and we'll see it happen again. O'Neill realized this. He saw the writing on the wall. So his idea was, I want sort of a private association for my ideas about space settlement and for other like-minded people who are interested in this idea. So he and his wife, Tasha, created the uh, Space Studies Institute in 1977, and it's still ongoing to this day. They have a uh, an awesome SoundCloud channel, and uh, I think anybody interested in this topic needs to listen to it. Uh, there's a few tapes from the night. I think it was the 1976 NASA Ames conferences, which are really cool to hear. They're like a time capsule. I really enjoy it. It's neat to hear O'Leary and um, O'Neill's voices talking about these things. You know, it's just because I never got to meet either of them. And, you know, reading about them is one thing. When, when you actually hear them speak, it's really cool. It is like a time capsule for me. A lot of his, you know, sort of I guess principles are on that SoundCloud channel, but the website is still very much up. All their um, newsletters and everything are up. The website is a really good resource as well. It's a really good summary of his vision and uh, others, you know, sort of determination to uh, have a similar vision or, you know, have the same vision uh, that yeah. he did. I noticed that it relocated from Princeton to California. Any idea why that happened? I'm just curious. My guess is maybe his family relocated. Some of his family may have relocated or uh, some of the people in charge of the organization um, may have relocated to California. So that's a possibility. I, so that might be why. 
Um, I'm, I'm sure his family has a pretty big stake in that organization to this day. Another thing I want to mention that I touched on a little bit is the L5 Society was started in 1975 by uh, uh, Keith Henson, I think, and Carolyn Meinl. That was the precursor to what we now know as the uh, National Space Society. It was dedicated to his a lot of his ideas and vision. I believe the L5 News, which was like their magazine, uh, which ran from, I think, 1975 to 86, 87-ish, around then. Um, I think issues of it are still available. They're still accessible online if you're interested in looking. I have a lot of paper copies of the L5 News. And to me, the best part about the L5 News is um, the art. Because a lot of big space artists are, you know, like Kim Poor and uh, Rick Sternbach and uh, Don Davis, they're in there. And uh, it's it's a lot of fantastic stuff. So I really enjoy the art and uh, stuff like that. And it's also a precursor to the um, the uh, magazine that the NSS has turned out for the, I think, the last few decades um, at Astra, which uh, I've written for. And it's a I'm a little biased. It's a fine publication. <laughs> very fine publication. Very ah, fine. So publication. If, you know, if they publish you, they they they're impeccable. Yeah. Exactly. Right. <laughs> we hope you enjoyed our interview with Emily Carney on Gerard K. O'Neill. We'll conclude our exploration of GKO's life, career, and enduring influence in our next podcast. For Emily Carney and Tom Hill, this is Eleanor Rangers for Space 3D.